The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you don't know where the book of 1 Corinthians is, just go to the very back of your Bible and then just kind of skip over five or six books, maybe about 50 pages or so back into your Bibles. We're in the book called 1 Corinthians, and we are working our way through this and we were just titling our series, um, Good News for Bad Christians, because we all are struggle in our Christian lives, or if you aren't a Christian, just so you know, you're signing up for something that is imperfect, and we don't really have our act together, but God cares about people who don't have their act together and aren't very good Christians, and this book is for people like you and me, or maybe just for me. You might be a better Christian than me, <laughs> but I am excited about what we're looking at this morning. We are picking up in chapter 2. And we're looking at this category of leadership, and we're just calling the, this passage, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, Christian leadership is weak. And I know that, that has gotten some people's attention. Um, by the way, uh, if you, I'm going to be quoting from this book, but this book, The Cross and Christian Ministry, I have an extra copy of it. If you say something nice to me after the service, compliment me in any way, <laughs> I will give this book to you. <laughs> So maybe something along how strong I am or how nice my bald head looks or something like that. But um, let me read our passage for us, and then let's pray, because I feel a very deep sense that I need God's help this morning with our passage. And then we will start looking at this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I declared, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this, passage. You show us an example of leadership in Paul that decides to focus on something. He decides to focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I pray this morning, Lord, that our hearts would decide to focus on him and to learn from him and to grow in this category of leadership. In his name we pray. Amen. So I've said this word a lot, but when I say the word leadership, what comes to mind for you? What's the, what's the category that comes to mind? What, what things spark your, in your imagination when I say the word leadership? Do you think about specific people? Do you think about like Bill Gates or whoever, you know, global leaders? Or do you think, do you think about good examples of leadership? Do you think about bad examples of leadership? Do you think about your boss, maybe your mom or dad? Do you think about... Um, politics, specific people in politics who are leaders, good or bad leaders. We say the word leadership, what comes to mind? Because that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about not the specific people, what comes to mind, but the nature of what leadership is. And typically what we think about or expect in leadership is what prompts us to think about those categories when that comes to mind. It's a critical category for our lives, how we think about leadership, because leadership is critical not only to our personal lives, but to our families or our relationships, our church. Um, it's, it's important for how we think about um, the life of who God has made us to be in Jesus. 
But before we move on, what, what is leadership? Like, what is, what is that category? Because sometimes we think about leadership and it's like, what's well, those guys on top, right? When I was in high school, I was really about uh, talking about the man. <laughs> you know, it's the man, right? That's, the, that's what leadership is. Le- leadership, I think, is just simply exercising influence in your, in your sphere of responsibilities towards specific goals. I just think leadership is basically influence towards goals, right? That's, that's basically what it is. In, influence, using our, in, our influence in our lives specifically to accomplish certain things is what leadership is all about. That's what leadership is. And that, so that means that while we're looking at this passage and we might talk about leadership for pastors or uh, people in your family or your boss or whatever, actually leadership, because it's the nature of influence, is actually a part of anybody's life, right? Whether you stay at home with the kids, whether you go out to work, whether you are an entrepreneur, or uh, whether you're a pastor or a deacon in a church, influence is a part of everybody's life, right? We're, we're trying to accomplish something, going somewhere. And what Paul talks through here in this passage, what we're looking at, what Paul talks through is the engine of his thinking on leadership. He's, he's kind of opening the hood of how he thinks about what it means to be a leader. He's showing us the inner engine of how he thinks about leadership, and he is doing it in the context of this church that is incredibly messed up and has got really weird expectations of what leadership is, right? You have to remember at the time, they would have been looking for um, the dynamic. They would have been looking for the uh, bolstering. He, they would have been looking for the big personality leaders, and those are the people that are true leaders. And Paul comes in, he kind of undercuts them, hits them right in the knee, right? That's not what leadership is all about. Because everybody has influence towards a goal. And Paul is trying to say the way you influence, how you influence, is a part of the... Sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I thought that was my child for a second. I was like, do I need to step in here? <laughs> sorry. I'm just keeping it real around here. The way Paul talks about leadership is um, the, way, the way we think about it we can use our cultural expectations, what we think about how we influence, or we can go with Paul and be Christian leaders and emphasize the cross of Christ. That's what that verse 2 is the center point of this passage. If you look at your Bible, 1 Corinthians 2 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's if you lift the lid on Paul's thinking about what does leadership mean? That's the engine. That's the very nature of what's going on here. That's the center of what's going on. It's all about keeping Jesus Christ at the center, Jesus on the cross as a center point of how we think about how we use our influence in the people around us, in our lives around us, in the areas of responsibility around us. So what we need to do is we look through this passage, we need to allow the cross, this main point of keeping Jesus Christ and him crucified, allow it to confront our expectations of what leadership is, but then ask, if this is the main point of the passage, Christian leadership magnifies the cross of Christ. That's the main point of the passage, right? And to magnify, right, just to define that real quick, magnify is you put something on their magnifying glass and you see it bigger. The cross doesn't need to become bigger with our help, but we, do, we make it look bigger with our lives. So the cross of Christ is at the center point of how we think about things. Christian leadership magnifies the cross of Christ, and so we're going to allow this to confront our thinking, and we're going to ask a few what, how do, what does it look like to exercise Christian leadership? And Paul's going to lead us through this in four steps, and uh, three of them are going to kind of deliver us to the conclusion. You guys tracking with me? We're cool? All right. 
First thing, we, the way we magnify, accomplishing the magnifying the cross of Christ is by strategically avoiding excellence, right? So we're going to, these are going to sound strange, right? We're going to read these, we're going to be like, what? Strategically avoiding excellence is where Paul goes to start out verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I, he came to them. Right, he had a message for them. He had a specific thing he wanted to accomplish. Right, his goal was to proclaim the excellencies of God. Right, the testimony of God. But his goal was specifically to not do it in a certain way. Right, what what, what did Paul not do? Right, he didn't do it in what does he say? With lofty speech or wisdom. Remember, so let's just revisit the context of the Corinthian church. What was what was what is he talking about with lofty speech and wisdom? Well, lofty speech would have been a reference to the sophist at the time. Sophist, I'm sure everybody in here knows, like they've got your, you've got sophist tattooed on you. You know, like everybody knows what a sophist is. No, <laughs> I don't expect anybody does. Sophist is this old school thing where basically there are a bunch of people that were really into saying things nicely without really caring about what they were saying, right? They were basically entertainers of the mouth, right? You have to remember um, beyond 20 years ago or 50 years ago, nobody had a TV, so they, they went and saw people... <laughs> get entertained in, in person, like in live settings. And these sophists were people that were basically entertainers with their words who didn't really care about what they were saying. Um, and that's basically just like uh, any sort of talk radio program that you have today, right? It's not that foreign of a concept. If you're in your car and you're listening to the radio and you're like, I don't think this guy knows what he's talking about. What he says is really nice. You know, that, that's what sophists were. They, were. they were very impressive in what they said. Or, he says, or in wisdom, right? And just, so it would have been people who, you had the sophists who were people who were impressive with their words, and then you had people who were the philosophers who were impressive with their thinking, right? So they had great ideas, and they could show you logical, bing, 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 how things all put together, and then at the end of it, of course, you would be incredibly dumb to disagree with them, right? So Paul decides, he says, I'm not going to do it with, with catchy phrases and words and excellence, and I'm not going to do it with with real smart talk. But what does he do? When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He did come to proclaim the testimony of God. All right, so what was the goal of what Paul is accomplishing? He was saying, there is a way that I could do this, right? This, this excellence of speaking and thinking is an excellence that could undermine my main goal, which is to tell you about what God's done in Jesus right? My goal is to tell you about everything that God's done in Jesus for us, but not to do it in a way that undermines what I'm trying to say, right? There, so you, you see, if, I don't know if you feel the category here, but what Paul's talking about is there's a way of telling people about who Jesus is that actually undermines what you're saying about Jesus, right? And that just so we don't get too like caught up on the details here, it's not that he's saying like don't use technology or things like that. Like he's not saying like, see, don't use like fancy ways of talking about God. Like don't take your microphone off and just you know whatever, because actually, the the Bible is all all through uses technology and things like that to talk about who God is. Right? Just so you, like at the time you, when you read through the Gospels, there's these moments where Jesus stands on a boat and talks to people. That would have been a new kind of invention at the time to amplify your voice. So it's not that like he's against using. Uh, tools to make people hear more about God, but it's the way tools are used to show who God is that he is concerned about, that 
could undermine the message of the cross. I think um, at the time, that whole thinking of impressive speaking or impressive, impressive thinking, that's all kind of this category of entertainment. And that feels all too familiar for our context today, right? For, for our American culture, right? And there's one thing that we love in America, it's entertainment, right? I mean, <laughs> how many people would rather uh, seriously consider cutting off a finger rather than cutting off their Netflix account, right? <laughs> Right? We, we, don't, we want to be entertained on a regular basis, and it influences how we think about things. It influences how we think about what it means to communicate because our expectations are communicating about something must be an entertaining way to keep people's attention, keep, people there, keep people's eyes on the main thing. Right? This, is, uh, this is why shows like America's Got Talent and all that stuff are like really big. And you'll notice that the thing about like America's Got Talent or, you know, The Voice or whatever, who, at the end of the day, right, who's at the center stage of that? It's the person, not the judges, whatever his name is, Adam whatever. The, it's the person, it's the entertainer, it's the person singing or it's the person performing, right? That's, they are at the center because that's our expectations is that they're impressive, incredible, our expectations of entertainment is that they're at the center, just like Paul's talking about. And Paul is saying, you could be impressive and entertaining and push Jesus off the stage, and who's left at the center? You are. Right? When we, I think when we see this in, in our church context, when we tend to talk about the worship experience, we, that's where the entertainment dynamic comes into play. Like The worship experience is that the emphasis is on your experience of the worship service, Right? Right? Your experience is the primary. It's that it, it's not bad, right? This is, you have to kind of think through this with me, right? Excellent, excellence is not bad, right? We want our worship team to be excellent. I want to be a good speaker. I want to be excellent, right? We want to have excellence in how we do our children's ministry. But if we make that the goal, that dis, that begins to kind of become the the centered thing that we want. It has to be that, and then everything else kind of goes to the side. So we, we push at entertainment. We push at the experience rather than who and what you're experiencing, right? Who and what you're experiencing often dictates what you experience, right? I want to have, a, for example, I want to have a good date with my wife. Uh, if I just do that over text, that's going to be a pretty lame date, <laughs> right? I'm going to have to set my phone down, and we have to go take her to, you know, I don't know, Thirsty Moose or someplace, you know, and have a good time just her and I talking, right? Our expectations of the excellence of the worship service or other things, right, can often cause us to put things up between Jesus at the center and what he's trying to accomplish, right? We want excellence, but we don't want a performance, Right? And so when Paul says, verse 1, I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, he's going after this category of like, we want things a certain way, but often the way we want them undermines what we're trying to accomplish. Right? This, is, this is an aspect of Christian leadership because we need to make sure that the, the ways we communicate with each other and the ways we communicate as a church primarily focus on what God is trying to say to us in Jesus and not what we're trying to accomplish in our own terms, right? So ask this question. I want to evaluate the why of how I am communicating and what are the results 
that I want with what I'm communicating. I want to evaluate the why. What am I trying to accomplish? Because is it me or Jesus that I'm trying to put at the center point here? And what is the result of what I'm trying to communicate? Is it so that Jesus looks great or is it so that I get what I want? Right? So Paul strategically avoids excellence as a way of making sure that he keeps the magnifying glass on the cross of Christ. Right? So we're going to pick up here, verse. we're going to skip over verse 2. We're going to come back to verse 2, but we're going to skip to verse 3. You guys cool with that? Verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear, with much trembling, and my speech and my message were in, my, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Right. So if, if the main point of this passage is Christian leadership magnifies the cross of Christ, that's what we're trying to do in our influence and how we influence things and talk about things and influence people to see who Jesus is. First thing is we avoid or we strategically avoid excellence. The second thing that Paul kind of lays out in terms of his steps is not only avoid specific of excellence, but also pursue appropriate weakness. This is where we're going to look at verse 3 through 4, pursue appropriate weakness, right? Because you read this, and just so you know, by most historians, Paul is considered one of the most brilliant men to walk the face of the planet. Like, just they look at his letters, and they, they look at the way he thinks. Christian, non-Christian, they look at his arguments. This is probably one of the most brilliant men to ever walk the face of the earth. And in one of his letters now, he says to us, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Was Paul a wimp? <laughs> you read that, you're like, what is up with Paul? Like, why is he saying, I was with you in much fear and trembling and weakness? Right? First of all, Paul, what he's doing, he's, there's actually a historical context to this, right? If you, if you go back, uh, Acts 18 is where Corinthian church was planted. If you read the kind of chapters leading up to it, Leon Morris helps put this in perspective. Paul first, when, when Paul first reached Corinth, he had experienced a great deal of discouragement. At Philippi, he had a promising beginning smashed by the opposition of fanatical Jews. The same thing happened when he went to Thessalonica, so step two, and Berea, step three. In Athens, he had little success. Small wonder when he came to busy, proud, intellectual Corinth, he was in fear, weakness and fear, and in much trembling, right? So to put that another way, Paul had had four failed church attempts <laughs> by the time he got to Corinth, right? He had been kicked out of four churches. And then he gets to Corinth, where they are very big and entertaining and loud and bolsterous. And he's just like, you know, he's kind of got the wind taken out of his sails, so to speak, right? He, he's a real person who's experienced some real failures. And now he gets to Corinth, and it's all lights and glam. And he just does not sure that he's got it. But the second thing that he's trying to show here is that, look, you guys want big names, dynamic leaders, and all that, the church in Corinth was not started by a celebrity pastor, right? The church in Corinth was not started by some guy that just, just gravitationally drew everybody into him and look how great we are and aren't we going to accomplish things. Actually, the church was started by God and he used a weak pastor to accomplish his mission to bring people to know Jesus, right? The other dynamic here is I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Right? Paul's goal as a leader was that the spirit would transform people to be more like Jesus, to love him and enjoy him and walk with him. That is a daunting task. 
right? That, that is a ridiculous job description, right? It, his, the, the, pastor, the pastor's job description is mature people to be like Jesus, help people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus, right? Do you know what's the missing component in there? I don't have the power to do that. <laughs> I, can't, I can't make that happen. Like, that's not something that I can accomplish, right? And that's not only true of pastors. That's true of you as, as Christians, right? Like, barely do I have the power to change myself, let alone, I can't even get my kids to put their clothes up off of the bathroom floor to put them in the laundry basket, right? I can't, I can't force anybody to become more like Jesus. You can't force anybody to become more like Jesus, right? That, 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 so he's emphasizing, right, there is a weakness that comes with the goal of being a Christian, right? You want to be a Christian? You're going to have a goal that you can't accomplish in your own power on your own terms, right? right? It, we want to mature and multiply disciples. I can't do it, right? But he says, verse 4, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. I think that what Paul is getting at there is he's saying, you know what? There's a way I could have used my words that would have been a power play and a manipulation of people to do what I wanted them to do, right? They, they, you could use your words to get people to do what you wanted. You can manipulate people. You can kind of lead people along to say, ah, but if you, if you really wanted to impress God, like you'd give more. If you really wanted to have a good life, you'd become a Christian because otherwise you're going to be a horrible person. You know, like you can kind of manipulate people with your words and get get people in the seats and get your numbers up, but it's not accomplishing the demonstration of the spirit of power, right? You can yell, right? You can, I can yell more. Maybe that would get people to do more things, right? Could you imagine me yelling? Actually, I do yell, and that's where I have to repent at home. Um, but the interesting thing is, and, and if you're not a Christian, this is maybe where you feel a similarity here, because there are a lot of ways in which Christians use manipulative tactics to get people to do what they want them to do, to get them to do things that seem impressive. It's funny. I've, I know my, my non-Christian friends in the city, they will talk about kind of like the big holidays of the year and the things that they see churches do to get people to come, and they sniff out manipulation in that. They know, man, that is a bait and switch. And they know that that's not what Jesus is about, even though they don't believe in Jesus. They, so that Paul is saying there are things that you can do that are totally fine to do, in a certain sense, but they could accomplish the very thing that you're, the, the very opposite of the thing you're trying to accomplish, right? Paul's emphasis here is what? In the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, what that phrase means, we see that and we think, what is he talking about? I think what Paul's talking about is the, the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives, to make people more like Jesus. I don't think that he's referring to incredible spiritual gifts at the moment. We're, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts later and they are incredible, and they're fantastic, and they happen, right? Some of the spiritual gifts, like we talked about, are administration. <laughs> Don't you want that one? But I think the Spirit is all about making people to be more like Jesus, to love mercy, to love justice, to love compassion and grace and weakness. That's a demonstration of the Spirit of power in a culture that would have loved pomp and power. The real power of God is shown and people who are broken, who love Jesus, don't have their act together, and are trying to point people to him. That's a weak place to be, isn't it? That, that's, a weak, that's a weakness that comes with the nature of Christian leadership, because we're trying to influence people to see Jesus, trying to influence people. He's the best. He's the greatest. How do you know he's the best and the greatest? Well, he, 
He wants weak people like me and his family, and probably weak people like you too. Right? It's not through crazy miracles or signs, but the Spirit's clear and obvious work to make people alive through a weak, trembling, and fearful pastor. I know what that's like. That, that feels like my life. <laughs> that feels like my life to help people grow to be more like Jesus, to know him and want to be with him and to follow him. And I have no power to manipulate them to do that, or I refuse to use the power to manipulate people. This, this aspect of Christian leadership, magnifying the cross of Christ by pursuing appropriate weakness, it's a bit scary open-handed. It's a, it's a bit of a scary open-handed place to be, right? Because I want this to happen. I want people to know who Jesus is. I want them to see who he is. I want them to enjoy who he is. But I can't force anybody to do it. All I can do is with Paul, say who he is. That feels like a very weak place to be. We don't want to be a church that has a power culture where people are manipulated and forced to love Jesus and follow him by some sort of show. We have to trust the influence of the Spirit. So ask this question. How do you clench your hand to accomplish what should be the Spirit's work? How do you clench your hand around the goals of Christian leadership to lead people, influencing people to love Jesus? How do you clench your hand when you should leave your hand open to trust the Spirit to do His work? And this, this applies for moms or dads at home. This applies for us in our workplaces. This applies for us in our relationships, in our marriages, in, um, in our life as a church, right? We all have good goals for each other too, right? We want each other to grow, to be more like Jesus. How often do we try to use our Christian, the leadership, our influence in each other's lives to force something to happen when really we should be using our words to influence somebody and trusting the power for change to God, right? That, if you think about that dynamic, that will free you from having to control your kids, having to control your spouse, having to control the church, having to control your job, and put you in a weak place, right? But it's an appropriate weakness to allow the Spirit to accomplish the true work and to trust that His ability to do it is actually better than ours. Okay. We're going to keep going here. We're going to pick up in verse 2 because Christian leadership is not merely about avoiding, uh, avoiding excellence or, or embracing appropriate weakness. But the third thing is, and this is what we've all kind of been leading up to, Christian leadership magnifies the cross of Christ by focusing on the cross of Christ. Very simple, right? This is where Paul, this verse 2, this is, if you want to know, what is a verse that Jacob thinks about whenever he's preparing a sermon? This is that verse that I think about every week. This is what Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the core of the passage. This is probably one of the most important verses in 1 Corinthians. This is probably one of the most important verses for you to get in your head of how you think, what does it mean to be a Christian leader, right? To use my influence. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you notice, before we get into talking about what he means by Jesus Christ and him crucified, the beginning of the verse, for I decided, right? This is a conscious choice of Paul. He looks at the playing field. He knows how his own heart's tempted. He knows how he, how he could use, you know, fancy words and incredible logic. And he knows how he could use a big, big, big show to manipulate people. He knows how he could do things to do a power play to get people to do what he wants them to do. 
Instead, he says, I decided. I decided a specific thing. I decided to focus on this one thing. This is my goal. This is the thing I decided on. It is a conscious choice to go in a specific gospel way that makes the gospel center in how he thinks and lives and moves as a leader. For I decided to know nothing among you, and what would he decide to know? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? This, is, this is where the whole playing field begins to change in front of us because if we make the experience or the entertainment the main thing that we focus on to get people in church or whatever, or if we talk about parenting or marriage or relationship advice or work advice as the main thing that we focus on and getting people into church, and those are all fine things and we want to be good at those things, if we make those things good, it's that basic principle, what you win people with is what you keep them with. If you win people with entertainment, the nature of being entertained is eventually you want to go to a different show, right? You're watching Netflix, you eventually get tired of watching The Punisher, and you want to go over to watch something else, right? That's the na- and that's fine with Netflix, whatever. But if you think about entertainment, that, 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 this is what Paul is saying. Keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is the cross of Christ, right? This is where God shows us who he is. This is where the Son of God takes on human flesh and lives a life among us, right? He lives a life that is all full of all the temptations that we face, and he lives among all the weaknesses that we have, and yet he lives and moves in those weaknesses and temptations so that he crushes their power over us when he is crushed under the weight of the cross. When Christ dies on the cross for us, in his weakness on the cross, in his unimpressiveness on the cross, right? In all the ways in which we would deride him for being a loser and having lost everything, it's his loss and weakness on the cross that crushes the power of all the sins and weaknesses that cling to our backs and sit in the back room seats of our minds and just don't go away. All those things that seem to have a power over us, that's where Jesus crushes them, is on the power of the cross, That's where he accomplishes our salvation. That's where he frees us from the power of Satan's sin and death. That's where God reveals his love for us. His happiness to be our God is when he takes away those things that are most shameful, sinful, and broken about us. He does it without our help. He does it despite us because he's trying to show us that his power in Christ's weakness is better than all the pomp and circumstance that we could ever bring to the table. That's why Paul says that's the most important thing. Because if that's the most important thing, if that's what we win people with, so to speak, if that's what we're one to being with Jesus for, we're one to being the disciple, to being a follower of a man who broke the power of the things that are darkest in our lives at his weakest moment. And now in his resurrection... He fills us with his power. How much better can life be now with him? It will always be better. It will always grow and strengthen even when life is hard, even when we continue to sin and fail. The cross is the beginning point, the middle point, and the end point of the Christian life because that's where God's love is shown to us. Not in fantastic sermons or preachers or worship bands or fantastic church programs but in the cross of Christ. This is what D.A. Carson in this book that I was telling you about, D.A. Carson says this, 
because what we can hear in this is like, so did, did Paul just kind of go around and just kind of say, the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ, and doesn't ever talk about anything else, doesn't ever talk about parenting money or anything else, right? Doesn't, is that what we mean? This is what D.A. Carson says. This is not, to, this does not mean that this was a new departure for Paul, still less that Paul was devoted to blissful ignorance of anything and everything other than the cross. No, what he means is that all he does and teaches is tied to the cross. He cannot long talk about Christian joy or Christian ethics or Christian fellowship or the Christian doctrine of God or anything else without finally tying it to the cross. Paul is gospel-centered. He is cross-centered. This is what this means. But when we talk about parenting, when we talk about relationships, when we talk about finances, or we talk about what it means to be a Christian at work, when we talk about what it means to be a Christian in recovery, when it talks about what it means to deal with our normal Christian lives, we talk about those things, and then we always end up talking about how the cross engages that category. And we're not going to be able to do all that right now <laughs> for all those categories. That's why we're going to go through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, because we're going to talk about some of that stuff. But we can't talk about those things without them having their center point in the cross of Christ. And I am afraid at times the, the broader Christian world in America... And we could be tempted this as well. We can talk about all these different categories, and if we neglect the cross of Christ, we are neglecting joining the true heart of God. Right, we can have social reform. We can have great families. We can have prosperous jobs. We can have good politicians. We can have, manuf- uh, um, we can have well-cared-for lawns and houses. We can have organic, free-range food. We have great programs in our church, children's ministries, We could even have slick pastors. But if we have no cross of Christ, we have no eternal life. That's the core of this. The cross of Christ is where God reveals his love to us and gives us eternal life. And without that, excellence, strength, and any other category without that is for nothing. That's why we have to always focus on keeping the cross of Christ at the center point of our hearts. I love the songs that we sang this morning. Man, Matt, thank you for picking such great songs because they draw us to seeing the gospel and its brilliant, beautiful, gory glory that is the heart of God to save us. Right? My influence, if I can do anything as a pastor, my influence will be 110%, if that's possible, to push is the cross of Christ at the center point of our lives. Are you going to use your influence in your life to join Paul in this verse to make sure that Christ is at the center point of how we think about every aspect of our lives, that the cross, the forgiving grace of God, right? That's how we become compassionate, forgiving, gracious people is that we look at a compassionate, gracious, forgiving God who actually put skin on the game, right? Skin on the line. (laughs) And his son died so that God could forgive and be gracious to us. Now, we become gracious and forgiving people by looking at the cross of Christ that forgave us. How much less is it for me to forgive somebody who sinned against me? All right, that's how the cross begins to kind of function for us and how it shapes and we can use our influence to keep the cross of Christ at the center point. So I want you to, com- can you commit to this with me? Can you commit this with me? That the cross of Christ is our one hope and all our influence will aim to push there. 
that push that Christ on the cross is our only hope. That is where our life and joy and everything about us that's even worth looking at is found is in the cross of Christ. Can you commit commit with me as a church? That's where we're going to put all of our weight so that we get this result. We're going to pick up in verse 5, and we'll finish with this. This is the result that Paul wants, right? It's verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So skipping down to verse 5, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, right? He says earlier in chapter 1, the cross is the power of God. The cross of Christ is the power of God. So that's what he's referring to. I do not want you to live your Christian life empowered by how good a pastor or how bad a pastor I am. I don't want you to live your Christian life in your marriage or singleness, your relationships, your job, your parenting, depending upon the power, your power, right, how good you are at something or somebody else's power or how good they are at being faithful at something. It must only rest on the power of God and the gospel. Jesus Christ himself on the cross. Because we're all going to fail each other, right? I'm going to have a dud of a sermon on a regular basis. <laughs> or I'm going to have bad pastoral advice. Or I'm going to say something that's actually unintentionally hurtful. If, you're, if the power for your Christian life depends on what I say and do, or the power for your Christian life depends on what your missional community says or does, you will be like a boat in the waves at high sea, with a lot of wind, you'll just be tossed around. But if you rest on the cross of Christ for your life, your faith will not be in the, in the wisdom of men. Your faith will be in the power of God. It will be anchored to the ground, just like the cross of Christ was. Right. This is why Christian leaders are people who choose not to be the center, not to have their way, not to be the ones in charge or to be so good that you can't ignore them, not to be strong and have it all together. Rather, Christian influence, Christian leadership moves people to see the power of Christ in the gospel so that they are spirit-filled people with lives changed because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, right? And this is not just for pastoring, right? We've kind of made this clear. Like, this is not just for Christian leaders. This is for our marriages, this is for our parenting, this is for our singleness, this is for our businesses. J.I. Packer has this line. Let me, let me finish with this. J.I. Packer refers to a time where he was, by the way, if you don't know who J.I. Packer is, he's basically like the Apostle Paul reincarnate today. <laughs> he's this old English-British guy, so he's got this really cool accent. J.I. Packer writes this. He was, I remember walking to a church one winter evening to preach on the words... He shall glorify me, right? This is the Spirit referring. Seeing the building, and seeing the building floodlit as I turned a corner and realized that this, is, this was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is done well, the floodlights are so placed that you don't see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make the visu- it, it visible when otherwise it would not be seen in the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Right? This is what we, 
when Paul says, verses 4 and 5, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's talking about not only the Holy Spirit being a floodlight on Jesus, but our lives being a floodlight on the cross of Christ. So that when people ask, why are you the way you are? Or what's going on in your life? The best thing about you is not, well, I, I read these great books and I've got some good atomic habits going and I've got some really good practices going on and blah, blah, blah. No, no. The only thing that's good about our lives is the cross of Jesus Christ where he, the Son of God died for us and freed us from the power of sin and weakness so that we could live lives in him. That's, that's Christian influence. That's Christian leadership. And that's an incredibly weak place to be because we have a weak Savior who died to, to destroy the power of the strongest things over us, sin and death. Right? So when we say Christian leadership is weak, it's because the only one who's strong is Jesus Christ himself. Christian leadership magnifies the cross of Christ. It must, must aim at that, focus on that, because that is where the glory of God is revealed to save us from our sin and to show us his love for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we, as we look at this passage and consider what does it mean to be people who use our influence and leadership to focus on the cross of Christ, God, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus on the cross in our hearts and in our minds bigger than all of our gifts and finaz and the things that we have to bring to the table because we want our lives shaped around him. We want our friends and our neighbors' lives and our families' lives shaped around him. Thank you, Father, that you saved us through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.